Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Quick break to tell you guys about NFL Game Pass, the only way that you can replay every game all season long. You can relive all the gutsy calls, crazy catches, wild comebacks, and breakout stars from every game every week. It's all the action, all the football you can handle, all in one place. So every game that we're talking about right now, you guys can rewatch it after the fact. I'm going to be going back, and you guys can too. Go check out Lamar Jackson in week one. Go check out Dak Prescott and what that Cowboys offense actually did. Go check out Kyler Murray and his NFL debut. That's my favorite thing about NFL Game Pass. You can go back and watch at any time. And if you haven't watched a condensed game yet, you have to try it out. It's every play from the game back to back to back, so you can replay an entire NFL game in the fraction of the time it normally takes. It's how I'm able to follow all the MVP candidates, all the breakout stars, and, of course, your waiver wire pickups all season long. To see all the action this season and stay on top of all the big storylines, you need NFL Game Pass. Best of all, you can kick off the 2019 NFL season with a seven-day free trial of NFL Game Pass. Just sign up now at NFL.com slash Pro Football Focus NFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Palazzolo here with Sam Monson. Sam, we've officially hit the offseason. It's kind of yes. sad. This is yeah. like the real offseason. It's not like there's no football being played. It's like there's no Anything. free agency or draft to look forward to as well. Yeah, right now so, nothing is happening anywhere. Yeah, it's, it's free agent time, which means we've got a couple things. First off, we heard your feedback, NFC West fans. Six of you, two of you, there's a couple of you, complains that we did rush through the NFC West draft coverage. They did, Sam. Yeah. Do you want to well, give them did. some more love? Let's give the NFC out. West a We did. We had a hard out. So we're going to do a little bit more NFC West uh, draft review. So we're going to start with that. Then we're going to hit on some news. All of the fifth-year options for the 2017 draft class they had to make a decision the teams do we want to pick this guy's pick this guy up or let him hit free agency after this year a lot of declines including four of the top five picks in that draft we'll go through all those players what it means what Corey davis can still offer teams going forward even without the fifth year option we'll go through all of that and then we'll hit on uh the question of the day which went into the comment section or the uh, review section over at itunes which you guys can also do we want to keep that going, Sam, for uh, free subscriptions? Yes. So free subscription, if you will read out a question, um, answer a question, rather. We'll read out and answer a question, in fact. Um, the way to get us your question is to leave a review in for, for the podcast in iTunes. Only this time, something we probably should have done last time, give us some way of contacting you. So leave us a Twitter handle, an email address, whatever it is you want. Give no us phone numbers. Getting probably not you. a phone number. So, no, probably not that. But we will announce the winner um, 
the further question later at the end of this show, and we will uh, give that guy a chance to contact us. But in future, give us a way of getting hold of you so that we can actually get you your free subscription. We uh, dropped the ball on that one a little bit last week. We did. Anyway, uh, appreciate that. So let's get through. Let's go through the NFC West again. I'll probably repeat a lot of the stuff I said the other day because I don't remember exactly what it was. Yeah. Um, and you'll probably do the same. But let's go back plan. through the Arizona Cardinals. And I think instead of just draft review, maybe a little bit of looking forward, what you know, what the depth chart means and how these guys are going to fit in. The Arizona Cardinals was one of our favorite drafts. As we said last week, uh, DeAndre Hopkins was the guy that they traded with David Johnson for their second rounder. But their first round pick, Isaiah Simmons, and third round pick, Josh Jones. I mean, those guys are starting right away. Stealing a starting right tackle in the third round is fantastic. And I just love what they did. And I know we talked about us loving their two years of drafts overall. Still some question marks about last year's class. But man, if those guys take a step forward, I'm loving where this roster is going. Have you heard anything since the draft that explains the fall of Josh Jones? I haven't. I, I didn't try digging into it. So the, the two things I tried to do digging into it was asking a couple people what's up with Josh Jones. A few more than a couple people. Um, people that just evaluate offensive linemen said, I don't know. I thought he was a first round player. Um, and then other people who were actually like within teams are saying, I don't know. We liked him. Our guys liked him more specifically. He was a top 32 player for us and, and all this stuff. So I don't know. I could dig into that further. It's, it's also it's a little curious. During the draft, you know, when everything is going on, like a, a round, a whole round of fall feels like, you know, this cataclysmic disaster that a guy's fallen like right out of the draft and what's going on. Whereas when you sit back and look at it and you're like, all right, a lot of people thought this guy was going in like the late 20s and he goes, you know, in the in the, in the early 70s. It's like it's not that big a fall. Like it felt way bigger. It felt yeah. like this guy was falling for days and days. You know, and it, it was a huge fall, but not as cataclysmic as it might have felt at the time. But that, I think, is the pick that makes this whole draft because obviously the trade is the thing that makes it generally because you go into this draft not needing to chase a number one wide receiver. If they hadn't done that, their entire offseason would have been about trying to find legitimate weapons for Kyler Murray to throw to. You secure New Hopkins in a trade. You get rid of David Johnson's contract, so it's almost cash neutral. Um, it's one of the most lopsided trades in NFL history. It's probably the most lopsided trade since the Ricky Williams trade, where it's like, no, here, have my entire draft plus some stuff next year so yeah. we can select this running back. Um, it's probably the most lopsided trade since that, including the Texans taking like a salary cap dump to get rid of Brock Osweiler. Um so that, but that gave them flexibility because they didn't have to take a receiver at the top of the first round. Um, they could essentially go best player available, which is what they did. Now, what really makes that is the other position that I think they must have been contemplating at the, in the, the first would have been tackle. Um, and everybody had this view that there's a, you know, there's a big four tackles and those guys are probably going to go high in the first round and then you're going to be left scrambling around for the sort of the next tier in the second or in the third. And it's sort of what happened, except for us, the big four would include Josh Jones. We would have had him there above Mackay Becton. Most people would have been the other way around. There would have been Becton, but then Josh Jones would have been the next guy up. But Austin Jackson gets, you know, reached for in the middle of the first round. 
guys like Ezra Cleveland in the second. Um, and Josh Jones slips all the way to the third, which is the next pick that the Cardinals have. So you, I mean, I don't know if we ever did this, but there's a reasonable chance that Josh Jones would have ended up mocked to the Cardinals in PFF system at number eight. And they get him two rounds later when they next pick having taken Isaiah yep. Simmons at eight. Like that is, that's kind of, it's like the, the Dallas Cowboys in terms of dream scenario, right? A guy that would have made a lot of sense for them when they were picking the first time, they ended up sliding all the way to the next pick and they, they got to take a, a player that was like a steal um, comparatively with the first pick. Yeah. That's all of the trickle down from the Deandre Hopkins trade, right? Be- like you said, because they filled that major need, feel good about DeAndre Hopkins, pair him with Christian Kirk, who has speed, Andy Isabella, who has speed. So you've got those types of receivers there. You have Larry Fitzgerald, who's still a good possession receiver. You're feeling pretty good about that top four. It opens up the ability to go Isaiah Simmons in the first round. And I really love some of the coverage versatility in that back seven. Now, between Isaiah Simmons, uh, Jordan Hicks has always been one of the better coverage linebackers in the NFL when healthy. Buda Baker can move around. We need Byron Murphy to kind of live up to his hype that we gave him, you know, as, a, as an excellent zone corner. Wasn't great as a rookie, but the potential's there. And then Patrick Peterson, Robert Alford's still there. I mean, they're looking pretty solid, potentially, right? I mean, there's definitely a step forward that needs to be taken there, but um, I just love that. And then they got a big four tackle, as you said, in the third round. Um, and, and, you know, that that offensive line, when we talk about our team building strategies of, Creeping back toward average here on the offensive line. DJ Humphreys has developed into a mid-tier offensive tackle. Justin Pugh has battled injury. Mason Cole, uh, both both of those guys, mid-tier type of guys. J.R. Sweezy, probably a little bit below average. And then Marcus Gilbert battling Josh Jones for that right tackle spot. Jones probably steps in. Um, I mean, it looks... it looks pretty average across the board. They were 22nd, I think, in our, our rankings last year on the offensive line. All they need to do is get up to 15, 16, 17 with the playmakers getting open a little bit quicker with Kyler Murray's processing just a little bit faster. And this offense takes another big step forward this year. So I'm just I'm liking the way that's all coming together for Arizona. And a huge amount of that gap between, you know, 20s and teens can be guys just staying healthy now. okay, that's probably a fairly large question mark when it comes to guys like Justin Pugh, who's just constantly injured. But they had a lot of injuries last year. If they could just get some run of healthy play from those guys, the line is probably better immediately, even without upgrading at any of the spots. Pugh's like my classic free. Give me give me all the Justin Pugh's of the world because he was good four years ago. And I don't care. This year, he'll be healthy and good, like Jared Um, Valdir. Another thing about this receiving core is, like, it is crying out for Andy Isabella to actually be A, used, and B, develop into the deep threat that he should be yeah like you know hopkins is phenomenal but he is sort of possession plus in terms of what he does he's not you know the best separator in the world he's not he's not bad downfield because he's got such incredible ball skills and physicality but it's not like he's the sean jackson out there larry fitzgerald as you pointed out is like 125 years old but is a really good slot possession guy if there's a gap in terms of skill set there it's somebody who's going to stretch the defense deep it's somebody who's going to scare them for speed Isabella can be that guy it just hasn't been yet and it's complicated by the fact that he is an awkward potential deployment you know you can't necessarily just line him up 
so he he's a speed receiver. He's not, we've talked before, he looks like a Wes Welker, but he doesn't play that way, right? That's not his game. He's not the underneath slot receiver. He's a vertical threat, but he might not have the physicality or the ability to defeat press coverage on the outside to be able to be a vertical threat from the outside, at which point now you have to start getting creative with deploying him inside where he gets free releases, but use him vertically whilst juggling the other receivers they have. So if that's what he is, yeah. it becomes more awkward to use, but at, something I still think is worth it given the deficiencies in the other players. At the same time, we, we even saw in limited time last year, he was pretty productive, had a couple big plays, right? And we saw it in the preseason as well. There were some very ugly plays there. All of your concerns about uh, you know his uh, strength through contact and like getting knocked off routes and physicality, like that all kind of showed up throughout last season. The same things that you said, eh, I like him, but but here's a couple caveats here. But he also like once or twice per preseason game or per NFL game got behind the defense, whether it was on a deep crosser or just a straight go ball, right um, from the slot or wherever, and. That might be all they need if he's the number four wide receiver, right? All you need is him to instill fear in the defense. And I know that might sound rich for a second round pick, but we'll talk about Corey Davis later in the show. I st- because it, we'll talk about receivers a lot on the show. Receiver is a three and four deep position in the NFL. And I think if you get specific, you know, production in certain areas from guys, that is fine. Because if you consider three or four receivers, your starters, they don't all have to be quote unquote number ones, yeah. right? They could be the third or fourth best receiver on the team. But if it is very specific what they do and they do it really well, I think that's fine. I think that's OK. And Isabella can be that. Isabella could be that guy as long as they don't try to make him into a Wes Welker. It's still hugely valuable. It just becomes more difficult to manage when you have to craft a specific role for a guy and, and sort of make other things accommodate, you know, move around to accommodate that, right? Like if, if all you had to do was trot him out there and he plays on the perimeter somewhere and all he does is run a go route easy you can do that yep. any any given play any time in the game does it makes sense if you know that you have to craft him a slot opportunity off the ball where he's not going to run into physical contact now it gets more complicated right because you've got Fitzgerald in the slot most of the time it's just it's it's doable but you have to think right. about it in a way you don't with the other stuff so if that's all he is it's still a valuable part of this offense and one they need to figure out a way of unleashing, but it requires more like dedicated runtime to make it happen, which becomes awkward. All right, let's move on to the Los Angeles Rams again. Part two uh, did not have a first round pick. There are two second round picks. Cam Akers, the running back out of Florida State, Van Jefferson, the wide receiver out of Florida. Once again, those first two picks were need fillers. That was th- that's why we didn't love those picks. Not only just picking a running back in Cam Akers, but also saying, okay, we lost Brandon Cooks. Yes, Josh Reynolds is going to be competing for that other outside wide receiver spot, but let's bring Van Jefferson in as the potential Brandon Cooks replacement. We talk about whack-a-mole for the uh, Atlanta Falcons. That was the, the phrase I used about how it's like, here's this good roster that we've had for a few years, but these holes are popping up, and I just got to fill them. I got to fill them. To me, that's just unexciting. It's, it, it's inevitable sometimes with roster building, but it's unexciting, especially when you force a running back. Todd Gurley's out. Cam Akers is in. Brandon Cooks is out. Van Jefferson's in. The Rams have put themselves in a spot where they tried to win now, win now, win now, and they didn't have the draft capital to properly replace some of those guys. Yeah. I mean, there's two things. It, it also, the whack-a-mole style of drafting, 
is just bad process to me. Like if you, there are, the good teams put themselves in a situation where they've already taken care of everything and they're drafting like a year out. It's yep. like I'm drafting now for this guy to be dominant next year when I really right. need him. Now, if right. he's like if he's awesome right off the bat, it's a bonus. Yes. If he isn't, I'm not stuck in a position where I'm actually relying on this guy being a, a pro bowler right away for me to be any good. So if you're like the best teams essentially draft a year ahead of the curve, the worst teams draft like a year behind the curve. It's like, wow, I am already screwed. I need to get a player in the top of this draft to plug this hole to stop the stop the leaking. So that's where the Rams are right now. So that, I think, just speaks to bad process right off the bat. And then the other bad process is coming to the conclusion that running back is your problem. That's just, on the face of it, absurd. You've got Malcolm Brown already there, who in plenty of his game time experience has outperformed Todd Gurley, right? Even when Todd Gurley was good, Malcolm Brown has come in and not there's been not a noticeable difference. You've got Daryl Henderson, who was a guy a load of people loved when you drafted him last year. This must, got, by the way... This is saying a lot about what they think of Daryl Henderson, right? And they yeah, get him in the third he's round. He's not the guy, but yeah. they're saying that because they had a garbage run blocking offensive line. He didn't look good. You've got John Kelly, who was a guy that flashed in limited snaps when he got on the field. You've got like if you can't, if your offensive line is good, there is absolutely no way that a backfield of John Kelly, Daryl Henderson, and Malcolm Brown isn't productive. But instead, you've come to the conclusion that our rush game, the run game was not productive last year, and it's all because of the running backs. It's all because Todd Gurley's arthritic knee meant that he fell off a cliff and he's no longer the same guy. And all these other guys are just guys because they didn't do anything either. Well, like, it's so it's I think it's just, in part it's that... It's bad but, analysis. But they also are believing in the offensive line development. And I'm just going to explain. This is why I don't think it's crazy, right? So here's the, here's the issue. What they've done in the offensive line, they're starters from left to right. 50-year-old Andrew Whitworth, still pretty good. Right tackle, not left to right. That's left tackle. Right tackle is Rob Havenstein. Uh, he has one bad year among five, right? He's been really, really good. So you kinda, you're kind of you expecting a bounce back there. So you're not going to necessarily replace him at right tackle. So tackles are kind of set. For this year alone, the interior are where the questions are. Austin Corbett, Brian Allen, Austin Blythe. But they've also drafted... David Edwards last year could play some guard or tackle. Bobby Evans last year could play some guard or tackle. Joseph Noteboom in 2018. They've invested a lot of mid-round picks on these guys. Of all the positions where like an Austin Corbett heading into year three, Brian Allen year three, Joseph Noteboom year three, this is the position where guys develop more in year three. So they're kind of banking on natural progression from the offensive line. Now we've seen this work sometimes. Like with the Los Angeles Chargers, they invested heavily, Dan Feeney, Forrest Lamp, some other guys, and they just never figured it out. And then you're just sitting there with this whole year over year. So I think the Rams are just banking on the young, youngish offensive linemen on the interior getting better here in years two, three, and four for those guys. It's a little risky, but I think that's what they're saying. Hey, we've invested a ton in these guys the last couple of years. Right, but that's a reason to not invest in the offensive line, not a reason to invest in running back. The point is, oh, if the offensive line gets better, the running backs get better anyway. So it's a waste of a pick either way. That's a good um, point. If you've determined that you don't need to spend capital on offensive line because you've already spent capital on offensive line, again, I would question the process, but fine. Let's That's... That's a difference of opinion, right? You can roll with that, and if you're wrong, okay, now you're in trouble. If you're right, 
Fair enough. But there's plenty of other positions you could have invested in that would have moved the needle more than running back. Um, you, you, you know, there's players on defense that could easily be upgraded. They still, the entire linebacking core essentially is well in, in need of, of upgrading, even with guys like Leonard Floyd coming over in free agency. Like there's nobody in that group that couldn't be upgraded upon. I'll say this. When you look at this this defensive front, you know how there's sometimes themes to drafts and all that stuff. The theme of the Rams offseason, off which, by the way, they may have stumbled into thanks to some contract mishaps. The theme was get tougher and stronger and better against the run up front. Now, in this division where the 49ers do have an excellent run game and the Seahawks are going to run no matter what, they're going to run, run, run. There's probably at least some value in being good against the run up front Michael Brockers they thought they were losing to the Ravens and then they still ended up paying him 10 million a year but he's a very good run defender Ashawn Robinson at his best normally a pretty good run defender has been a little up and down throughout his career I mean those dudes up front next to Aaron Donald is a pretty good you know three from a run game perspective plus when they brought in Leonard Floyd not a great pass rusher pretty decent edge setter and then their third round pick Terrell Lewis Do you remember Jonathan Newsom from mm. the Indianapolis Colts, the kind of a lanky edge defender type. That's who Terrell Lewis reminds me of. Just like a solid jacks up tight ends, outside backer type that can play the run pretty well. It does feel like that's where they've gone with their defensive front, especially with Corey Littleton. Not a very good run defender. Excellent coverage player now out. So, again, I don't know if that's what they were going for defensively, but I think that's what they've achieved this offseason. It'll be interesting to see if those because those guys don't get after the quarterback very well. I don't think Aaron Donald has, um, you know, nice additions to, to complement his no. 80 to 90 pressure attack. But um, those guys are going to be a little bit firmer up front, I'd say, from a run game perspective. And Terrell Lewis, their third round pick, is a part of it. My favorite pick was third round pick Terrell Burgess, though, out of Utah. Always one of my favorite players. Covers the slot. Can play safety. The guy that had zero penalties in college had incredible patience at the line of scrimmage, patience at the catch point. Sam, we talked about this before, about how difficult it is to actually make a play on the ball and not interfere. Um, he's really good at all that stuff. I think he fits in to what they're doing in the secondary with some some versatile players back there as well. The the other problem with the Cam Akers pick, right, is this is a team without a first-round selection. Like, this was their first pick in the draft. If you, oh, I hate that more than anything. I really right. do. If that you have put yourself in the position where you don't have a first-round pick – to spend your first selection in the draft on a running back that a is probably not going to move the needle. Even if you had an absolute complete, if there was nobody in your backfield, if you had just four guys off the street currently sitting there in your, on the, of the bottom of your roster, it would be a bad way of spending a pick, but you've actually got three guys that can probably play reasonably well at the NFL level. And you're still choosing to spend it on a running back now. Okay. They had two second round picks, you know, Van Jefferson was five picks later, so it's not like it's not like that was their only pick in the first two days. But still, like if you're in a position where you don't have a first round pick, the first time you come up, you kind of need to be, you know, grabbing a guy that's going to make a significant impact on you winning football games. And just just Cam Akers is not going to do that. So I also talked to some Rams fans. I said, look, this is just a risky process not having. I think it's going to be like four out of five years with no, because they don't have a first round pick next year. It's like four out of five years right. with no first rounder. And the response was, well, we've drafted well in the middle rounds. And that's kind of the issue is like, yes, like finding Cooper cup in the middle rounds, finding 
Tyler Higby and Gerald Everett, second round, fourth round, like all that stuff's fine, but it runs out. Like once again, like the Rams really have to hit on all these guys again to keep this roster replenished. And it's just difficult to do without first round picks because just hit rates um, or payouts from first round picks are generally higher. You know, it's just it's risky process to just say, well, we've got a good scouting department. Like the Seahawks had a good scouting department when they found all good players until they stopped being good at finding good players like Richard Sherman and Earl Thomas and Cam Chancellor right. and all like those guys. The Vikings have had this argument as well because Spielman's found a lot of guys in the mid-rounds. The, the bottom line is nobody has got a proven track record of being better at this than anybody else over an extended period of time in terms of finding people in the mid to low rounds, right? You're going to get guys that go on a run and they hit on a few people, but it's not sustainable. Nobody has ever sustained it long-term. Um, so if your strategy is... Well, it's okay because we're good at hitting on these mid-round guys. You're not because if you were, you would like everybody would just that would be the strategy. You would dump everything except those mid-round picks, and then you just game everybody because you get your pro bowlers in the mid-rounds. Everyone else is getting them in the first round. Like nobody does that because it's not a sustainable long-term approach to team building. It's just it isn't. You got lucky for a while. Obviously, there's more to it than luck. You put you know the hard work into it, but everybody is. You effectively got a little bit lucky. You're riding a wave of striking on a few good players, and it's probably not happening long term. All right, let's go on to the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, Jordan Brooks, their first round pick, the linebacker out of Texas Tech. He's a very good football player. I mean, he's a very good run defender. Uh, I, I actually listened to some of the Seattle press conferences. You know how we were joking about, yeah, Pete Carroll probably just loved the guy. I mean, they did love him. He's got a he had a kid came from a tough background, was homeless for a time. I mean, there was a lot of things that I think attracted the Seahawks to him. I think the curious part of the pick is not so much. Will he be a good player? It still comes down to what's the path to the field immediately. And not that that completely matters. We just you just mentioned like, hey, teams are doing a, they do a good job of thinking forward, right? Looking uh, a year ahead. So from like a year ahead standpoint, fine. But it's at linebacker at a position where I do think this guy has question marks in coverage. Now, this is where we talk. We, I just mentioned, hey, the Seahawks were really good at drafting for a while or whatever it is. You could he came uh, the coaching staff at Utah State coached him at Texas Tech. That's where they got Bobby Wagner from. I could see the wheels turning in uh, John Schneider's head, Pete Carroll's head saying athletic linebacker with the same coaching staff at Utah state turned into Bobby Wagner turned into the second best linebacker of his era behind Luke Keekley. I think that's what they think they're getting. The tape didn't necessarily show it yet, but I think that's, that's what their, that's what their process is. If they get that, that's a good pick at 27. I just don't know if he'll get there. Yeah. And a lot of people are saying this is, you know, KJ Wright's replacement. I, there's a reasonable chance they think he's Bobby Wagner's successor long-term. The, the thing that's about this think. is, this is one that wasn't just like, this isn't PFF saying this is a bad pick. Like everybody thinks they reached by like a round. So we had him as a 64th ranked prospect on our big board. The consensus board that Arif Hassan at the athletic puts together had him um, 57 spots lower. So (laughs) he got taken almost two full rounds higher than people thought he should go on a consensus basis. We were actually kinder on him than the consensus was like whatever you think about him as a player this is one of those examples where you have taken a, it's like the damon arnett thing right 
you might be right, but even if you are, you appear to have set fire to the value you could have had by A, taking him lower, or B, leveraging the fact that you could take him lower by trading. So now, and, it's, not and this is it's not that you've got a bad player necessarily. It's that you've taken him at a spot that's just terrible value. And this is why I love just I, – I always anticipate Seattle's picks. I mean, LJ Collier was their first-round pick last year. We had him as a second-rounder, I think, at best. Um, Rashad Penny, we did like for a running back, but they put him in the first round a couple years ago. You know, they always end up taking people, um, I think, ahead of the consensus. Remember when they drafted Bruce Irvin? It was that famous yeah. 2012 draft. When they drafted Bruce Irvin, uh, I was running a draft site at the time. But anyway, they it shocked everybody. Nobody had Bruce Irvin in the first round. Um, that was when they really, I think, started to draft athletes. People questioned it. He ended up becoming a pretty good player, what have you. Probably could have had him later. But that was also the draft that they got Bobby Wagner and Russell Wilson. Seattle's still kind of living off that draft. They have not been a great drafting team. I like what they did in 2019, the DK Metcalf draft and all that stuff, other than Collier. They haven't been a great drafting team since they hit on Russell Wilson in the third, which is a franchise changer. You hit on Bobby Wagner in the second. You know, um, but they've kind of they, they stick to their own. They stick to their guns. That's how they do it. So I can see their vision with Brooks. But to your point, probably could have had him later. And I don't know that he becomes Bobby Wagner. I'm just not sure. As far as paths to the field right now, I think it's him, KJ Wright and Bobby Wagner out on the field. You know, um, Brooks did play a little walkout backer in 2018 for Texas Tech. So there's some some experience there playing in space. Cody Barton, they got in the third round last year, who, you know, they seem to like. Ben Burke-Curvin was a solid college player. I mean, they're kind of loaded at a, a position at linebacker that you don't necessarily need to be loaded at. That's that's well, part of the point as well. It's going to be interesting to see this year if they do actually run more nickel. Last year, they were not even, you know, teams are off um, as uh, anomalies by themselves and some of these things, the Seahawks are in a different world compared to everybody else in terms of running nickel. Like the, most teams were running nickel 75% of their snaps. The Seahawks were like, I, I don't know what they, they were under 25. 65 or so. Well, I mean, yeah, 65 base or whatever it was. Yeah, they were like 25% so, nickel or something. So they're like a completely different world to anybody else. You know, their line was that their linebacker was their nickel. Um, they were See, a nickel. It's just that the third guy was a linebacker. Now, do they continue that, or do they actually now they have some personnel, or do they believe they have personnel to actually run nickel like the rest of the NFL with a defensive back, not a linebacker? See, for a team like that though, that has zone heavy principles that yeah you know, they match and all that stuff. When you're playing zone heavy principles, and a lot of it's just like sprint out to curl flat and you know keep the ball in front of you and all that stuff. You don't necessarily need a nickel back to do that. And I don't know if that's their reasoning on it, because there's a difference between playing the slot and going up man to man and covering the slot receiver and then lining up over the slot and playing more zone principles like Seattle does zone and match and all that stuff. So I don't know if that's part of their thought process or if it was legitimately like Ugo Amadi as the nickel back is just not the guy that they want uh, to be out there or, or they just don't have confidence uh, in playing man coverage. I would think with Shaquille Griffin and Quentin Dunbar. Are you doing a little write-up on Dunbar this week? Did I see that? Yeah. Later yeah, week. check that out. PFF.com. I bet it will be good. Um, with those two guys at corner, they might want to play a little bit more in man coverage, meaning you better have more of a, a nickel type out there, an actual slot cornerback out there, rather than just a linebacker if you're going to be playing matchups, right? So, um, yeah. 
that will be interesting to see. The two edge defenders that they got, Daryl Taylor and uh, Alton Robinson. I don't think we had them that far apart. Uh, maybe we did. Taylor a little bit higher. But I'm, I, I watch both of those guys. Just good, solid players. I'll tell you what, though. Getting an edge in the fifth like Alton Robinson, I think he plays. I think he, I think he sees some time. I'm fine with that. Um, Damian Lewis is their big mauling interior offensive lineman out of LSU in the third round. So, I mean, the rest of the draft is just like, just okay. Um, they did mention at the press conference, they felt like some of the offseason moves that they made opened them up to not necessarily fill needs. The Quentin Dunbar pick for a fifth. Was that what it was? A fifth, right? The trade? Yeah. Steal. I mean, that is an absolute steal. Even if he doesn't, even if he's not the same career year type of guy that he was last year. I mean, that's just potentially a massive upgrade for what they've had there with Trey Flowers and, and others kind of rotating through. So here's an interesting thing I just pulled out using uh, using PFF Ultimate, Steve. Oh. Uh, base personnel percentage. Yes. So we got these scatter plots, right? We show every NFL team on a graph. So base personnel percentage, the Seahawks were, they're the only team above the, you know, halfway axis. Yeah. Like 50%. Um, in, this, in this case, the halfway axis is at 30%, not 50. Oh, okay. So gotcha. they're the only team above, above the halfway axis, which is 30%. What? They're at like 57 or something. Wow. And I plotted it against explosive plays allowed in the passing game just for giggles. And they are the second worst team in the NFL at explosive plays in the passing game. Interesting. So, and the other team that is the worst was the Arizona Cardinals, who were the second highest team in terms of base personnel allowed, so, or percentage. So I'm trying so to maybe run some more nickel. Well, so I'm trying to like talk my way into it. Maybe this is their strategy, blah, 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 blah. But the, if it is, it isn't working. But the answer should be do you remember like when Charles Woodson, he changed from corner to slot slash linebacker slash strong safety. Like he lined up over the slot and he just did it all right. He had three different skill sets rolled into one, kind of like what Antoine Winfield always did instead of like, that is what teams should be chasing. The Isaiah, the Isaiah Simmons type, right? The guy that can mm-hmm. give you slot coverage ability, but also be reasonable enough against the run as a line, like linebacker, essentially as the, as the extra player that can, that can run and chase. Right. So um, that is what teams should be chasing is more hybrid type of players, safeties, with slot skills or corners with slot skills and safeties that could, you know, hit like a linebacker, like an Amik Robertson. Um, but they should be chasing more hybrid type players if that's what they want, rather than taking linebackers and making them do, you know, difficult things. You do it over two years. The Seahawks are still by far and away the most in terms of base personnel percentage. And they're also still the second worst team in the NFL in terms of explosive plays allowed. So if that is their strategy in terms of, Hey, it's it's his own principles. A linebacker can do it. It isn't working. It's not working. So yeah. Maybe change it up. All right, let's wrap it up. Finally, again, for the second time with the NFC West, mm. the San Francisco 49ers. I think my takeaway with this, it was it became a status quo draft. And I don't know. I, I always come back to I seem to be coming back to this take. But sometimes teams just have to do that. They're at a spot where they had to replenish the Forrest Buckner. They did it with Javon Kinlaw, Emmanuel Sanders out, Brandon Ayuk in. And Joe Staley retires and to replace him with Trent Williams. I mean, you know how tough it is to find for teams to find like a quarterback. You know, teams feel like they're looking for a quarterback for four years, five years, 20 years. If you're the Dolphins, sometimes finding a left tackle is really difficult. And the Niners go from was it 12 years or so of Joe Staley to more than that, I think, to Trent Williams stepping in. 
at least for a year here and then you know maybe they you know lock him up further so that is that is a great way to at least maintain this roster for this year and going forward by the San Francisco 49ers the Trent Williams thing is huge. I'm kind of curious. I never heard what the timeline on that was in terms of when they realized Joe Staley was going to retire and they needed to patch that up. Yeah, I didn't um, hear that either because I would assume they had some heads up. You would have well, they have to have had some because in in you know that Peter King column, uh, Tampa Bay knew about it. Like Tampa Bay. Oh, because that's why they were at the 49ers might take a tackle in the first round because right. they had heard that Joe Staley was going to was going to retire. Now, I mean, yeah, I don't know, but that that definitely being able to maintain quality left tackle play at that position is huge for a team that wants to get back to the Super Bowl and to the playoffs. Um Trent Williams injuries are a concern, like he's been banged up basically every time he's played over the last few years, but he's just had a year off getting healthy. So again, it's what does that do? What does a year away from the game getting 100% healthy do for a guy who's, who was dealing with attritional injury problems? That will be interesting to watch. The, I mean, their draft is essentially those first two picks, right? It's Javon Kinlaw in the first round and Brandon Ayuk in the first round. And they didn't pick again until the fifth because of the trades. Um, so it's really what you think of those two guys. I think Ayuk is perfect for their scheme. Um, I think given the the receivers that they could have been chasing, I think he makes the most sense for this Shanahan offense. He's got enough speed to be the player that everybody was trying to mesh them with with Henry Ruggs, but he's also got this crazy run after the catch skills. He's a lot more physical, like he's a bigger guy than that. So I really like that as a connection. And then the Javon Kinlaw thing, like in isolation, I don't think it's a, a bad pick. I just don't love the process around it. And I'm never wild generally even even if you move past the process of uh, John Lynch suggesting that it was because Seattle had some big mauling offensive linemen. You didn't like that to get part bigger. of the process? I mean, the overall process, you know I liked it as far as flipping yeah. DeForest Buckner for 13 overall. I mean, I really didn't like that part of the process, which is, hey, Seattle have some big offensive linemen. We got to get, you know, yeah. bigger. But I also, I'm never in love with any process that essentially leaves you having to replace a proven commodity that you traded away with the pick that you traded away yeah. for him. I, I just don't like that as a strategy. I understand that you get cheaper and you know, when you phrase it in an interesting way, which is you get sort of, it's like an investment. You get X yeah. years of playing time out of that first guy and then you flip him for something almost the same as what you spent on him. So from that way, you know, from that way of looking at it, it's like a net zero, but, or a net positive even because of the playing time you got out of him. But you then have to try and replace that guy with the same pick. And that's just risky because the draft is still such a crapshoot. Even in the first round, the strike rate is not good enough to rely on that having to rely on that being a net win. Yeah, I liked the process because I didn't think they were going to be able to pay Buck. They can't pay all those defensive linemen. Right. And there were rumors that they wanted to trade down beyond just the one pick. Right. They went from 13 to 14. There were rumors that they wanted to trade down. There was this scenario where they traded DeForest Buckner for 13 overall, 13 turned into two picks, maybe three picks, and it was like, okay, wait, you just got rid of DeForest Buckner, who you couldn't pay, and you're going to get three picks in return? And if one of them is an interior interior defensive lineman, great, then you replaced him, but there's also two other picks in there, which they need because they didn't have a pick rounds two, three, and four, um, well, now after they traded um, for Trent Williams. So um, 
I thought that there was better process to be had there, potentially. Javon Kinlaw as a player, though, similar, 6'6", can rush the passer, super explosive off the line of scrimmage, and he reminds me more of Marcus Stroud, but, you know, that's just... I don't know if people remember Marcus Stroud, athletic 6'6 guy. The way Marcus Stroud played, it was him and John Henderson, 6'6", 6'7", defensive tackles for the Jags. They got up and down the line of scrimmage. They almost looked like linebackers. Stroud, in particular, was really quick. That's how Kinlaw moves. Like He just gets up and down the line of scrimmage in a hurry. So um, good player who will fit into that defensive line, and I'm all with you as far as IU could be in a good fit. Now, are you buying Kyle Shanahan saying that he was their top receiver? Like he's saying that he was their top no. guy. Now, does that mean like at the time when they drafted him I, at 25? I could definitely believe at the time. There's yeah. no way he was the number one wide receiver on their entire board. Yeah, but I, but certainly the fit. And here's the thing. Like I always talk about teams having like different guys to do different things. But his skill set is kind of similar to Debo Samuel as far as like they are animals with the ball in their hands. I think Debo's probably a cleaner route runner. But when you have now two guys who are so dangerous in space, plus George Kittle, Plus guys like Raheem Mostert, who are uh, really, really fast in a very unique, well-schemed up running game. You really don't know who's carrying the ball on a given play. And even if it's just Debo for two or three a game and Ayuk for two or three a game, you've got the running back by committee. And then, oh, by the way, George Kittle is running behind the defense all the time, too. It's really tough to defend. So um, picks that keep defensive coordinators up at night, I give them the big thumbs up. So. Uh, Niners only had five picks in the draft. I think the one other interesting pick was wide receiver Jawan Jennings from Tennessee. Uh, we had him much higher on the board. There were some off-field concerns that um, we found out about a little bit later uh, that are still a concern, which is why he ended up in the seventh round. Um, but he's the guy who like kind of ran slow but just didn't get tackled. Like They used him in the wild catalog at Tennessee. Just really good. Another guy that's just really good with the ball in his hands. So if they figure him out, if they figure out Jalen Hurd, a former running back from Tennessee, like the Niners have a type and it is, are you dangerous with the ball in your hands? They got Jalen Hurd last year in the third round from Baylor, who was a running back and is now six, four, right? So if one more of these guys that are difficult to tackle, just pan out even more difficult for the San Francisco offense to defend. Yeah. I got to say, I didn't love Juwan Jennings tape at all. So I, you know, I could easily see him sliding way down the draft. But like a gimmick, um, but as a gimmick player, more than a pure wide receiver is because he was not athletic at all, but he was just a guy that people didn't tackle well in the Southeastern Conference, Sam. Yeah. Between the hedges. There you go. NFC draft, <laughs> NFC West draft review, part two done. Uh, wanted to give our fans what they were begging for, even if it was just two or three of you. We did skimp on the NFC West. Um, let's get to some of these fifth-year options. So for those of you who don't know, first-round picks, they sign four-year contracts. They get an option for their fifth year. The team has to pick it up ahead of the fourth year, so just like a year in advance. So all these guys from the 2017 draft have only played three years of football, and right now, today's the deadline, May the 4th, um, they have to make a decision. Yes. They have to make a decision on whether or not to pay these guys. And it's a big it's a big chunk of change for all these guys, especially top 10 picks. Um, so there's a lot of players who had their fifth year option declined, um, including, again, four out of the top five picks. That includes Mitchell Trubisky, uh, Solomon Thomas, Leonard Fournette and Corey Davis. 
The only guy remaining is Miles Garrett, who will be back with the Cleveland Browns. So we're talking, I believe it is four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven first rounders most likely hitting free agency. I don't think we got official word yet on guys like Garrett Bowles and Hassan Reddick as of recording time, but I think we're assuming they're not going to have their option picked up. So I just want to discuss some of these names and what they still maybe have to offer, starting with those the guys in the top five. Mitchell, Mitchell Trubisky, the number two pick in the draft, not number three, will not have his fifth-year option picked up by the Chicago Bears. Are you surprised? No. We're two years removed from Bears fans very convinced that he had, you know, second-year progression. He's just going to continue to get better. When the reality is, if you look at our grades, it's been three years of below-average NFL quarterback play, even with that peak 2018, which I think was fool's gold because of the team's record and really, really good system around Mitchell. Yeah, I mean, look, Trubisky's NFL NFL career might not be over, but his Chicago career effectively is. Like this, even if he's going to pan out somewhere, it's not going to be there. Like his time at the point where the psychotic, staunch Trubisky supporting Bears fans who had been like, "No, he's he's developing." You guys are haters. At the point where those guys all jumped off the bandwagon, which happened, by the way, like in the exact same week last year. Like, all of them in one week jumped off. They were off. like, we're done. Yes. Yeah. So, at the point where all those guys abandoned ship, like, it's done. You, you're not coming back from that. Um, there. You might come back somewhere else. You get a second swing at the bat and you become Ryan Tannehill down the line. But it's not happening in Chicago. And, you know, Nick Foles coming over just sealed his fate. I don't know that Foles is the answer either. But, like, the Bears are basically looking for the quarterback of the future again. Um, it, they swung and miss with Trubisky which is going to be especially galling because the two guys taken after him are two of the best young quarterbacks in the NFL, so it looks even worse. And I'm not hating on them for that. We had it the same way around in terms of having Trubisky at the top as well. They just It just hurts extra because right. of that. But yeah, Trubisky, uh, it didn't, didn't work out. Not much else to say on that. I think Solomon Thomas was the number three pick with the San Francisco 49ers. Um, I'm writing all these guys up for PFF.com for for this week, so doing some research and trying. So what I'm trying to figure out is why did they not get their option picked up? Sometimes it's really obvious. And then what else do they have to offer going forward? Solomon Thomas's projections don't look great going forward. And I know we coming out, he only had a pass rush grade of like 76 in college. We thought that was like a little bit of a concern, but he was progressing in that area. It has been a disaster at the NFL level getting after the quarterback. Yes, he played out of position playing off the edge, but even when he rushes from the interior, he's better, but still pretty much below average compared to his peers. So Solomon Thomas, I think at this point, looks like a journeyman, and that's not great for a third overall pick. Why? So he still has never been given the role that he had in college. Like, I don't, so I don't understand teams that take a guy that was really good at doing X thing in college and ask him to do Y thing in the NFL, and then watch him be terrible at that all the way and never change, never go back to X, right? Like I get projecting a guy to somewhere else in the NFL makes some sense. If you believe this guy has got a skill set to do something different than he did in college and it's more valuable or it's a better thing and we're going to give him a shot at that. But if it doesn't pan out, why wouldn't you go back to the thing he was good at in college? Why would you just say, no, we're going to continue plowing this furrow regardless of how many you know buried landmines it runs into like go back to what he was good at 
he was good at lining up interior, inside, and shooting gaps, penetrating the offensive line and getting into the backfield and causing problems. Now, you're, you're telling me that you know his, his the data at the NFL level, even when he is inside, is not good, but also a huge amount of that is like it's the the amount of opportunity stuff again like if you're spending your entire life in a four-point stance just sort of absorbing and not getting it like when you finally get the chance to shoot it's not like it's not the same as getting 300 snaps to do that That, so that is where he could potentially be salvaged okay so he does have when he's just playing three technique a 67.4 pass rush grade uh, which is way better than his average which is average. It's also 10th. So I took all the edge defenders that have done that. All the edge defenders right. that kick inside and do that. He's 10 out of 32 in three years. So that's pretty good. That's above average for edge defenders. But there's also interior defensive linemen who also do it at a higher level. So from an NFL standpoint, you might have some value there, right? Overall rushing in between the tackles, his grades like 60, not good. When rushing from the edge, you ready for this, Sam? F- yeah. 50.8, which yeah. is 151st. He's bad over the last three years. Don't have him doing that. But then here's the other issue, though. Against the run in the interior, he's terrible as well. And that's where he was awesome in college. My theory on that is that in college, he had really good block awareness. He knew where he knew where guys were coming from. He could shed them. They've got him lining up in this four point stance Mm -hmm. and he's just flying forward. So and he, he's, he's not using his recognition skills. I think he's a pretty good play. He's pretty good at diagnosing plays, which is why he was one of the top run defenders in the nation a couple of years ago. So it's but this is the issue, right? He plays the run well on the edge, but can't rush the passer. He rushes the passer better on the interior, but can't play the run right now the way he's being used. He's Frosty Rucker, guys. If anybody knows Frosty Rucker, the dude had an eight to ten year NFL career as like a three to five hundred snap rotational player. Like that's what Solomon Thomas is at this point. But think about how much alignment is affecting those things, right? Like he's better defending the run in the position he plays the most at, i.e. the one he's used to and understands how all the blocking works there. But he's better rushing the passer, which is the sort of natural instinct thing where he doesn't where he doesn't where he played in college right yeah so in theory if you just played him inside the whole time he would then be better against the run because now he's playing there all the time and understands how the blocking schemes work inside constantly as opposed to just on the few snaps a game he gets deployed there and he can rush the passer better there because that's where he's better doing that so i just think all of his not all of his problems he may never be worth the draft pick that he was picked at but he becomes an immediately, significantly, you know, needle-moving better player by just being aligned where he played in college. And I have no idea why this team is so insistent on not doing that. Because they have better players there, I think, is what happened. I mean, they just have – their defensive line is pretty good. Here's the thing with Thomas. I think he's a rotational player at this point in his career. You could try to salvage it. There's other guys on this list that are salvageable or have better roles. Thomas just, I don't think, is on the high end of that. Um he was a, he's the classic example of even if the 49ers can never find a way to make it happen, a team should immediately jump on him when he gets out of San Francisco, move him to three tech and see what happens. So once again, to be clear, all of these guys will be with their current teams next year, other than you know Chris ha- uh, Charles Harris got traded from the Miami Dolphins to the Atlanta Falcons. The Falcons now have mm-hmm. two edges um, who probably won't who won't have their fifth year options take uh, picked up. Um, so they'll be with the same team this year and then hit free agency. Next year, right. the number four overall pick was Leonard Fournette. 
Jacksonville Jaguars. Um, definitely a mistake at the time going running back that high. Uh, we've we've hit this one pretty hard in general, but it's the running back. It's the fact that it's a running back that doesn't have great lateral agility, doesn't have great feel for the pass game. Like Fournette just, you know, doesn't add a ton of value to NFL offenses these days. Fournette is interesting, though, because if you rewind to that draft, there were a lot of people crazy high on him. Um, and, you know, there was a season in, in college grading where his grade was really good as well. But he represents like a cautionary tale as to what does and doesn't work at the NFL level. Size, size and the ability to just truck people and then run away from them in college is not what does it anymore. Yeah. That's what used to get it done. But in today's NFL, you don't tend to run over that many people. Like Derrick Henry is still getting it done, that methodology. But I would say Henry is A, an outlier, and B, gets helped by that offensive line in a way a lot of people don't want to acknowledge enough. But Fournette just isn't that impactful. And you know the comparison was him and Christian McCaffrey – kind of all the way through their college careers and then into the NFL draft, because I did a ton of Stanford games over that period, I was always McCaffrey over Fournette. But that was like a legitimate argument, and a lot of most people sided with Fournette because of what he did in LSU. But if you look at even what he was doing then, a huge amount of it was just that guy is just running over a 180-pound defensive back and then running off into the distance. Like, you don't get that... That doesn't happen in the NFL because nobody is that, you know, 170 pound guy that just gets trucked and then he's gone. Like everybody is big. Everybody can tackle by and large. And those guys that rely on just power and straight line speed don't function anymore. Right. So Fournette, they were trying to trade him. We talked about what the trade value would be like. I can't imagine it would have been higher than a fifth. Even even around draft time. So I think Fournette plays out the season hits free agency he's not gonna you know make derrick henry type of money or anything like henry was french um franchised but you know he's not gonna henry would make some money on the open market i think i don't think mm -hmm. Fournette's getting overpaid um cory davis the number five overall pick we've had a lot of fun with this because he was my bold hall of famer hall of famer he was my bold take again for people that don't remember i was asked for a bold take day before the draft i loved cory davis as a prospect i said he'll be a top 10 Receptions guy of all time, right? Thousand, Just, uh, thousand reception guy. What, what's the current tally? How far away are we? Uh, is it like 157 or something like that? But mm. he's done some of his best work in the playoffs that one game. So, you know, that doesn't count in the tally. Mm. Um, so I was grinding Corey Davis film all weekend again, just to kind of catch up what, what's gone right, what has gone wrong. I think for Corey Davis, I, I did think that he was going to win at all levels of the field. I thought he had enough route running ability yeah, like how many slants does Michael Thomas win? Like he, like Michael Thomas is catching slants left and right, right? I mean, I thought David, I thought that'd be like a good part of Davis's game. It really hasn't been, and you almost saw it like right from the beginning of his career. Like I think it was his first target. He makes this incredible back shoulder catch, and that's like those are like highlight real plays that he showed in college, but it wasn't really his game. It was like the dude can get open, and he catches the ball and he gets upfield quickly. So I think. The issue with Corey Davis is he's essentially become this like vertical route tree guy, pretty good on back shoulders, pretty good on deep outs, but he's not a great deep threat, so to speak. So he's not going to win on straight go balls and he's not great on underneath stuff. So he's not going to catch a bunch of slants and turn eight yards into 15 or 20. 
and he's not great on schemed up stuff. He he created a lot of yards after the catch in college, but not it's not working at the NFL level. He's just not twitchy or dynamic enough at the NFL level. So you're not going to like scheme him up screens and flat routes and all these things to have the high volume production. Maybe I expected. Now hmm. that is not worth. So all that is not worth picking up his fifth year option, paying him a ton of money because he's not a number one wide receiver. I still think he's a number two ish type of receiver, two or three, three in a really loaded wide receiver core because he's really good still. He's a very good NFL receiver, but it still comes back to you need three or four good receivers. And Corey Davis can be one of them and add a very specific skill set. You just can't expect him to be Michael Thomas. I thought he'd be closer to a Michael Thomas type than he has been. Is that fair? Yes. Um, all of that appears to be a long-winded way of saying that you are wrong. No, I'm just trying to give some good analysis to what Corey Davis is going to be as a free agent. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I was, okay. I was wrong with a bold take that I just made up <laughs> the day before the draft. Yeah. So what? Well, also just generally the Corey Davis love. Um, yeah, I still love him. He's still, he's still really good. He's a really good player. Yeah. There, it's interesting. There's a group of these receivers that um, like what's so we've been trying to work out what separates all these fast receivers, right? All these guys that run a four three. Like what separates the Deshaun Jacksons, who's got like a fifteen year career of doing this, with the Darius Hayward Bays that have a couple of years and crap out and have never been particularly effective. Like what what is the actual skill set that differentiates these speed athletes from being even if they're they're never sort of dynamic um, catch point players or don't have you know what what actually makes them viable deep threats compared to the other guys that in theory have the same athleticism i think there's a similar question to be asked with guys that are like, what separates a michael thomas and a deandre hopkins from a Corey davis the guys that don't have the staggering athleticism and freaky twitch ability are bigger bodies um and don't win with separation necessarily but win with just like being better like i mean because Corey, you're right there, there isn't that much when you watch this college tape that's the player that Corey davis should have become is this guy that wins everywhere doesn't have any flaws to his game but isn't gonna be you know isn't gonna be crazy separation route running and and speed guy see i think i think michael i think there's just a little bit i'm going through my Corey davis notes footwork wise technique wise like horizontal type routes ins slants that type of thing like davis just isn't as efficient and i think even like even new hopkins who's not creating crazy separation is just a little bit more efficient in and out of his break same thing with a michael thomas davis is either not twitchy enough right and if you're not going to be twitchy enough you're going to use like a little physicality or just efficient footwork and he's just a little off he's just better on the vertical route tree it's just funny because receiver is such a tricky position because there's a lot of nuance there's nuance to every position but this one in particular like he's really good at catching the ball on a little hitch and just getting upfield crazy fast right if you're talking about yak does that really well college and in, in in the nfl if you give him the ball in the flat it takes him an hour to get going right to, to get upfield so there's just like certain parts of his game usually laterally driven where davis just isn't um isn't as dynamic or isn't isn't as good as he could be but i think he's a good complementary piece so he's going to hit free agent like solomon thomas is going to hit free agency and i'm going to say he's my number six defensive lineman on my team Corey Davis is going to hit free agency, and I'm going to say, I hope he's my number three. I hope I'm good enough that he's a number three or a low-end two, which has a ton of value in the NFL, right? Because he could still do 
specific things. Then you have a guy like John Ross, who's tough to figure out too because he's got the four two two speed. In my issue with trying trying to figure out what makes what separates these guys, usually it's quickness, right? He's got plenty of quickness. Remember, he put a dory on the ground in college. Ross has been tough to figure out. It's been injuries, some weird start with Cincinnati where they moved him to corner for 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 some practices as a rookie. I mean, it's just been this weird. I don't know. I'm still looking for my Deshaun Jackson, so I would take a shot on John Ross because he did show it in college. I don't think he's like a, he's a different body type from Hayward Bay, but like Hayward Bay was always like clunky catching the ball and he looked like a pure speed guy. Like I still think John Ross has something maybe to salvage. John Ross is so I he doesn't he's a player that I don't think is as fast as the 422. Um but it you know, showed up in college, right? Like when he ran 422, oh, it was like, okay, we saw this in college. That's cool. Don't double count it. Sort of, though. But I don't think anyone ever thought that this guy was going to break Chris Johnson's record. Yeah. You know, there, there are certain play- when you're in the four twos, and particularly the low four twos, four, that's angle breaking speed, right? Yeah. That's that should be immediately visible as this is different from even fast guys. Like I've only seen two or three players where they're so fast that it completely screws everybody's angles, every play because your brain can't change. That stuff is automatic. Your brain can't change that over the course of a game. Like you're used to a guy when he sets off, you know where he's going to be in six steps time. If a guy is demonstrably faster than every other human, he's going to be somewhere else. And you can't recompute that. That's just learned muscle memory that you can't fix on the fly. Randy Moss did that. Um, Chris Johnson did that before injury started to slow him down. And this guy broke Chris Johnson's record. So he should be on every single play screwing with defenders leverage and with their angles in a way he just doesn't. Um, he's fast and he, he's quick. Like you said, he wrecked the Dory Jackson off the line in college. So he should still be a, you know, Deshaun Jackson-esque type of player. But he, I don't think he's as fast as that 4-2-2. So yeah, I think fair. that part of it is always sort of see, setting people off on a, slight, um, a slightly misguided path as to what he should be. I, I think this, but he yeah. should still be a fast, like, game-changing weapon that right. he hasn't been for most of his career it is funny i was looking at all like the uh, when i was studying Corey davis i was you know Corey davis too he just kind of like lands in like the middle of the pack he's just solid at a lot of things right catches the ball well he's solid at intermediate solid down the, all of it right so i'm looking at all the deep receiving grades and john ross was at like a special point at the bottom of the list below <laughs> everybody else right i mean that would be the big concern right and as much as i love having that deep threat there's also a ton of evidence that actual production down the field has i mean speed is like the 50th thing on the list that that matters um there are just the the handful of exceptions usually winning down the field has to do with just overall route running ability because you still have to stack a corner track the ball catch it uh get off the line of scrimmage. there's all these other things that have to happen before four two speed even kicks in um so yeah ross has not been terribly productive down the field um, there are just some fascinating lists here. Gary and Conley, uh, guys on this list. Gary and Conley. And I think the theme of this thing is I don't want to pay these guys crazy money, but they still have a role in the NFL. So Gary and Conley, his splits are crazy, right? He's already exhausted things with the Raiders. He gets traded to the Houston Texans. If you just look at press coverage situations, 
he's been a top 10 to 15 corner over the last three years. Justin Press, he's only played two years, really, 18 and 19, played a handful of snaps in 2017. Justin Press, and coming out, we were like, hey, you know, he's more of a press man type of guy, doesn't have great zone instincts. So he's, um, I think it's like 11th in coverage, in coverage grade in press and 80th overall during that time. Yeah, which, by the way, is like the entirety of the Ohio State corners, right? They're all – that's what they do, yeah. right? They're all better in press coverage, press man, than they are in off or zone. And the only – like the question is projecting those guys into other defenses because most teams do not run anything like that level of press coverage. Yeah, and even the teams that play press the most, New England. Now, the whole Belichick tree is playing a ton of it, right? New England, Miami, the Lions – you still only talk actual press man, maybe 40% of the time, 35% of the time. Actual man's a little over 50. Um, but that's why I think Conley, when he hits free, either the Texans go man heavy this year and just go all out, boom or bust in the secondary, because they're not the most talented team in the secondary. But that's the only way to maybe get the most out of Gary and Conley and maybe a couple of the other big guys back there. Or once he hits free agency, do it, does a team like the Lions might not need him, but... Does Miami eventually let, you know, try to move on from Xavier Howard, replace him with Conley? Like, I'm trying to think of the teams that might fit here. Like, there's a role for him in the NFL. Um, but, the, like, playing off coverage and recognizing route concepts, and there's, like, a whole lot of stuff that he's just not very good at. And that's all those landed as, like, a, tough, a mid-tier coverage grade. Yeah, those guys are in a tough spot. The, the players that are, like, that come from man-heavy college systems – <clears throat> and never develop the <clears throat> the zone or the off coverage part of their game in the NFL. So you're now like pigeonholed as this man specific corner in a league that doesn't play an awful lot of man anymore. And even the, like even the most man heavy teams in the NFL, those Belichick coaching tree guys, they're between like fifty and sixty percent. So it's still forty percent of the time you're bad. And a lot of the Belichick stuff's game plan, like you got to play cover two, you got to play cover three this week. We're going to play quarters out of nowhere in the Super Bowl. Right. You know, like you got to. You have to be able to have that that game plan versatility. Um, but yeah, I, the Raiders, you could kind of see why they were disappointed. He also, at times, he just straight up got torched. I mean, there were just bouts of play where he's just been torched. But Conley, I think, is a good reclamation project. The other reclamations, I think, Karis McKinley has been like a pretty good pass rusher. He's still probably like a low-end pass rusher. Him and Charles Harris, both on the same team. Harris has been a little bit worse than him. Um, Malik Hooker, a uh, lot of trade rumors for the Colts unlikely that they're going to pick his up i still have faith in him he's probably not as agile on the back end as maybe i anticipated as rangy on the back end but he still has a few of those flash plays um so i could see i don't know he's he's been good not great in coverage and in a too high type of system so maybe he's not the true center fielder that he looked like he could be coming out of ohio state but he's still a good player overall um and then the one other tricky one was Garrett Bowles, the left tackle for the Broncos. We always talk about how difficult it is to find average tackle play. He's essentially been average as a tackle. The penalties are 45 penalties over the last three years, most in the NFL. And yes. he had 17 his last year in college. Like, it's that's a trend. Um, so the penalties are definitely maddening. But if you can get past the penalties, actual pass blocking, it doesn't always look pretty. But relative to the rest of the league, like it's pretty good. But like paying a ton of money for average is not right. what you want to do either. So that's where like the price and the production just doesn't match up. So that part is true, right? That you don't want to you don't want to pay him a ton of money because he's only average. But I think he gets a, I think his the perception of his play gets skewed because of those penalties. 
So we, you know, for years we've talked about this idea of one of the things that PFF does is it eliminates the way people remember games, which is just the mental highlight reel. Right. You remember the top end plays, you remember the bottom end plays, and throw out everything in the middle. And for offensive linemen, that means effectively you're only remembering the bad plays because they don't. Their good plays are by definition essentially, uh, you know, anonymous. You don't see them. You block a guy out of the play on a pass rush. He doesn't make a play. You don't see it, so it doesn't count. So for offensive linemen, you remember only the negative, so you're probably skewing negative in him anyway. And for Bowles, his negatives are the penalties, right? It's like holding. And those are vaguely crippling plays. But what he does is essentially he substitutes catastrophic pass-blocking plays for holding, right? Like if he gets beat, he's going to tackle the dude, and he's not going to get it, and he'll get done for holding, but he won't allow the, the guy deck as quarterback so in the past two seasons he's got what 16 combined sacks and hits given up so he's allowed his quarterback to hit the dirt 16 times in the past two years not a lot that's pretty good right that's not bad and total pressures he's basically 30 averaging 30 a season which again is not the worst number in the world but you add in the penalties right because he's basically substituting a bunch of negative pass blocking plays for penalties but I mean, as much as that is a huge number for a penalty, if you essentially swap those in to bad pressures, there's a lot of tackles that are in that ballpark as well. So it's not, it's, I don't think it's as bad as a lot of people think it is. It's just that every one of those negative plays is being noticed because it's a penalty. It's a flag. It's, you know, moving. Now you can, you could argue that he shouldn't be doing that, right? Maybe you're actually better off taking a catastrophic pressure and running the risk that your quarterback takes a right, hit that's going to put him out of the game. There's at least a chance that he can get the ball off. Right, because most, play. in fact, most of the time it's just a pressure. Right, right. It's not actually getting him killed. But I know that there are people that will that prefer that. Right, that if you're going to get beat, make sure that guy doesn't hit the quarterback. Right. That's your job as a blindside. Well, he's good at that. He just strangles the defensive end over and over again. That's what right? I mean. So I know that there are coaches and NFL people that would actually applaud that way of doing things but it's just that that means that every time he's beaten it's something that everybody notices because it gets a flag called on it so i just think like the overall point is at best he's average but i think it's probably worth noting that he is average and not the catastrophic disaster he looks like when people just go that dude's getting flagged every drive like he's better than that, but he is average at best. There are rumors that Elijah Wilkinson, who's played a little bit of tackle, a little bit of guard um, for the Broncos, will be in competition with Bowles for the starting left tackle spot. I do think they're sick of the penalties. Um, it will be. Would you kick Reisner out there? I would give him a shot because you know our theory on you know try tackle until you fail. He is a monster guard. I mean, what's he like six five, six six? Three plot. Yeah, we'll have to get the actual dimensions, but he's a big boy, and he <laughs> actual dimensions. Um, he had some ugly, clunky reps. Six five, three twelve. Um, but he's just crazy strong, and he didn't get challenged a ton in the Big Twelve. The numbers were really good. He had some ugly reps against speed rushers, but again, try it. Now you don't have a ton of training camp to try it, but I'd try it. You know, in worst case, it's like, oh, he was pretty solid guard last year. Pretty good pass protector and all that stuff. I think he'll be a very good player. But I would try everybody to tackle until they fail. Just like you you always try a guy as a starting pitcher until he fails. You put him in the bullpen, Sam. You know that. I mean, particularly at the point where you're already opening it up as a competition. Yeah, I would. If it's going to be a two-man competition, you might as well make it a three-man and see if Bowles immediately looks or if uh, Reisner immediately looks like the best guy there. Yeah. 
I would give I would give it a shot. So anyway, uh, check out PFF.com. I got even more analysis with our, with the great Timo giving some uh, projections past and forward. Uh, forward looking as far as what these guys look like from a grading standpoint on these fifth year option declines. Let's get to our uh, question of the week and, and wrap it up, Sam. All right. Got it. So, yeah, uh, this question came from where did it come from? All right. You read the question. I'll go find out who it came from because I've lost the name. Hey, Sam and Steve. I love everything about PFF in your show. The end. Good start. All right, now, Good start. question. I like this question. I'm glad you picked it. PFF emphasizes the wide receivers are one of the most important positions in terms of war or wins above replacement. Could it be possible the wide receivers are being overvalued because of how many variables their production is dependent on, such as quarterback, O-line, and coaching? In free agency and the draft, wide receivers are often overpaid and overdrafted because they looked good in their situation last year. Then they're inserted into a new situation and flop. That's from, I think, Mike. Yes, that is from Mike Daman, D-A-M-A-N, 24. So you're going to have to email podcasts at pff.com and convince us somehow that you are that guy <laughs> to earn your free subscription. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I have faith in you. Yeah, leave so your Twitter Mike, handle question. or something so we can give you a free yeah. stuff. Give us something that convinces us that you are the guy that left that iTunes review question. And in future, anybody else wanting to win needs to actually leave a handle so we can contact you rather than vice versa. So, All right, let's get to his question. It's a great question. Do you want to start or do you want me to? Well, why don't you give it a shot? Okay, so I do think wide receiver obviously has some dependency on situation because usage pattern. Do you play in the slot? Do you play outside? Do you play – like we talked about with Corey Davis, right? Are you What types of routes are they asking you to run? Are you the X, the Z, all that stuff? There's dependency there. There's dependency on the quarterback actually throwing you the ball to actually produce. I think in part, we have to look at these things like bets. This is what I'm learning a lot from our analytics stuff, right? So when we talk about taking receivers high in the draft or saying you need receivers, it comes back to what is the payout when you have them and how many do you need, right? So you need to have three or four good receivers, I think, to maximize your offense. So you have to take more shots at them. Therefore, they're inherently more valuable. Then it's kind of like if I give you $50, let's say 100 bucks, right? If I give you $100 to spend on a wide receiver or a defensive tackle, if the de- defensive tackle hits and he's good for your football team and he does everything you expect, you'll probably say earn 100 bucks, right? You get 100 bucks, you put up 100 bucks and you win, you get 100 bucks back and you feel pretty good about your defensive tackle. Um, and there's a pretty good chance that that's the case because you can evaluate defensive tackles a little bit easier. And it's good. Now, if I give you a hundred bucks to spend on a receiver because of all the other situations we talked about, the, it is more difficult to feel good about the projection, right? There's a lot of things that have to go right, but the payout might be say 200 bucks, right? So the war, I'm not saying it's a clean two to one, but the payout is higher. Now there's a chance you're going to lose your money along the way, but because you need so many wide receivers, because you need two, at least two to be good. You'd like to have three, and it'd be great to have four because if you've got four good wide receivers, man, your passing offense is humming, and you're probably scoring a lot of points. You have to take some more of those chances. So you might lose a bunch of bets along the way, but the payout, you know, if, if you if you try to – two wide receivers equals one defensive tackle essentially, right? You just need to hit on one of those wide receivers um, to earn the same payout as the interior defensive lineman. Does that all make sense? Are we getting there? Sort of. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think the part of the question that's interesting is, you know, are we overvaluing them because, you know, if you get guys overdrafted or signed for big money in free agency because their situation was really good last year and they then stink in the new situation. So I think what that is, is I don't think that the league is good enough yet at understanding all the various elements of play. Right. And being able to, therefore, once you understand them, project what it's going to be. That's one of the big parts of all the back end PFF stuff, whether it's your critical factors and PFF IQ, whether it's the R&D guys and the data analytics is using and leveraging all this data to be able to predict things far more accurately and be able to hand this stuff to NFL teams and say, all right, here is how you take a guy in situation X, project him to situation Y and see what he's going to be rather than basically trying to guess from, you know, your understanding and the tape study of what you've seen, how that works. That in theory should make drafting more efficient. It should make free agent flops less frequent and all these kinds of things. But I think that's almost independent from this idea of correctly valuing wide receivers, right? It's yes, they're definitely dependent on a bunch of things, but you can, you should be able to take a guy and uh, extricate him from his surrounding and position him somewhere else and understand what he's going to bring to the table. And it's a case of if you identify the things that are driven by the wide receiver, like the separation, the ability to get open, the speed, if you figure out the things that he's bringing to the table as opposed to the things that are being manufactured for him, that that ability is incredibly valuable and worth you know, taking high at the top of the draft, worth giving huge money to and free agency, et cetera, et cetera. But if, if A, you're being misled because of the sort of supporting cast or the other things that are influencing it, or B, you don't have a quarterback, which is the overriding factor on any in anything, it doesn't matter. So it's almost like a two-part thing. I, I don't think we're overvaluing wide receiver, but I think in order for that value to matter, you need to understand that the receiver is the thing driving the production and that you actually have a quarterback. Otherwise, see, nothing matters. See, that's a good point because we always keep coming back to this idea that 20 quarterbacks in the league are in this quote-unquote middle tier and that the only way to maximize their production is with incredible receiving talent around them. And we've seen that. We saw Dak Prescott be the you know second most productive quarterback in the league last year by our numbers. We've seen Andy Dalton. We've seen a lot of players elevated by rolling three and four deep with playmakers, right? So if the goal, if we think, right, it starts with this, we think that you win by passing the ball and stopping the pass. And to pass the ball efficiently, the best path to success is an elite quarterback. Okay, if you don't have the elite quarterback, the next best path is to have a middle-tier quarterback and really good receivers, right? So this path to pass game success does flow through the receiver talent. Um, I think it's a great question. It's one that I think um, we continue to wrestle with. And I'll just say this too: the payout at receiver, the payout at corner, even though it's harder to predict sometimes the payout is so great that you have to take more shots. And I think uh, as evaluators, we all have to change our tune a little bit about hits and misses and say, well, this team uh, missed on all of these players. And you know, what's your hit rate? Oh, it's 60%. Well, who cares if, the 60% that you hit on are all defensive tackles or guards or, you know, box safeties, right? Those guys are easier bets, so to speak, right? It's okay if you only hit on one out of three players, if it's at the most valuable positions and the payoff from that one might equal hitting on three lesser positions. 
Um, the other thing is uh, we saw the like the reverse of what happens when you don't have any of these impact players, and they're as valuable by their absence as they are with their presence, right? Like the Patriots last year. Basically didn't have any impact receivers, and that made everything look terrible. It made Tom Brady look bad. It had a knock-on effect of making the offensive line look, bla- look bad. Like the lack of quality, viable receivers in New England made the entire offense fall to pieces and collapse like almost immediately. So it, it, it's hugely valuable because of what a guy can bring positively to a team, but it's also hugely valuable because if you don't have those guys, everything is immediately almost catastrophically bad compared with if you do. Yeah, like I think every quarterback's production, there's dependency on the quarterback for the receiver and vice versa and all that stuff. I do think there's always been a point where the Bradys and Rodgers and Breezes have always elevated the people around them. As they get older, it's harder to do that, and there's just not a whole lot of quarterbacks that will do that. I mean, we'll still see with, say, Patrick Mahomes. If Patrick Mahomes loses Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey, or one of them over the next couple of years, and they're just trotting out more Demarcus Robinsons of the world, right, or average Sammy Watkins of the world, is he still going to be breaking the league? I have a feeling he'll be able to elevate whoever's given to him, but it's always nicer to have Tyree Kill plus Travis Kelsey plus Miko Hardman as a change. You know, it's better to have those guys. Great question, though. Um, we, we can always discuss player value and valuation and all that stuff. Good times. All right, let's wrap it up. That's it. Off season has started. Um, Sam, do you want to ask the folks if if they have any opinions on some of our, you know, hopeful uh, new podcast formats down the road or do you need any no. feedback? Do you need any let us know? <laughs> okay, good. I don't. I don't need don't need to let us know yet. Okay, let's just get out of here. We'll see you guys Thursday. More off-season discussion. Have a good week. quick break to tell you guys about nfl game pass the only way that you can replay every game all season long you can relive all the gutsy calls crazy catches wild comebacks and breakout stars from every game every week it's all the action all the football you can handle all in one place so every game that we're talking about right now you guys can rewatch it after the fact i'm gonna be going back and you guys can too go check out lamar jackson in week one go check out dak prescott and what that cowboys offense actually did Go check out Kyler Murray and his NFL debut. That's my favorite thing about NFL Game Pass. You can go back and watch at any time. And if you haven't watched a condensed game yet, you have to try it out. It's every play from the game back to back to back so you can replay an entire NFL game in the fraction of the time it normally takes. It's how I'm able to follow all the MVP candidates, all the breakout stars, and, of course, your waiver wire pickups all season long. To see all the action this season and stay on top of all the big storylines, you need NFL Game Pass. Best of all, you can kick off the 2019 NFL season with a seven-day free trial of NFL Game Pass. Just sign up now at NFL.com slash Pro Football Focus NFL.